0: History. Lecture number 90, Rabbi yeah, Laiweis. the, uh, as we've been indicating, the Jews start to move east. If, if, if they were in Europe, if the major um, demographic part portion of Am Yisrael was in Western Europe, um, that is proved decisively not hospitable to Klai Yisrael. As, as Spain, followed by Portugal, Portugal expels its Jews, France goes through many such contortions. England has already done so. Um, Germany just likes to massacre their Jews. They also occasionally expel them, um, as does uh, Austria. And um, the Jews now are in Poland. We find a lot of them. Obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying for the, for. But if you can picture history in broad, uh, in broad mosaic kind of a, a picture, so you picture them gravitating towards the east and. Big cities like Lublin or Krak- Krakow, where you can still see remains of Jewish life today, but more than the big cities, they gravitated to the countryside, to tiny villages, sometimes without a minion. And the nature of Klal Yisrael, in the in, as we find them in the 16th moving into the 17th century, um, was actually pretty strong in Torah, a tenacious bunch. Uh, even without a minion, they were stark and they were careful in observance. Poland and gradually Russia will become the center of the Torah world um, as the Sephardi world becomes uh, fragmented. Russia? What's that? Russia? Eventually, sure. And it's a day we're going to hear a lot of great names coming from, 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 uh, from Russia and, and certainly Poland. Um, there would be uh, great commentaries that we're gonna hear about today that uh, emerge on the Shulchan Aruch, meaning if that's the work of the day, then of course the people are all learning it, the great sages of the time would then be commenting on it and producing some of their, their, epic, uh, their epic works on, on exactly this issue that everybody's discussing. It will also, and this will take a little more time, produce some of the great flourishing yeshivas of all time. Now, how is Eastern Europe different, and I'm talking in broad terms, than Western Europe? Western Europe, we increasingly find, they're Jews who who stayed back in the West, uh, often to their detriment. And in general, we start to find that in the West, the Jews will become more liberal, more what we call cosmopolitan. Uh, In Poland and Lithuania, the Jews (coughs) were more oppressed, and they adapted. That was the way it was. They didn't much like their neighbors. Uh, if you picture the Jews, let's say, in the Ukraine area of today, the Cossacks, as we're going to talk about them soon enough, uh, they were not an attractive alternative to Judaism. They were often drunkards. And uh, so the Jews, with very little to subsist on, very little Parnassa, would remain insular. The Jewish world is of, th- of their own. Um, because they had fewer professional opportunities, it meant what did they do with their time? They sat and they played with their smartphones. No, no, they sat and they, uh, <coughs> they learned the Torah because that's what you had to do. The uh, Rebbi's of today in various yeshivas bemoan this back in my day, Sonny, when we uh, we were bored in the dormitory and there was really nothing going on, you shrugged your shoulders. You said, "Well, I guess you want to go to the basement Madras? Yeah, yeah, I'll go to the base of Maybe pick up, pick up, pick up some Torah. Nowadays, there are any number of alternate, al- alternate activities that vie for your attention and your time. Uh, Torah kind of falls by the wayside. The uh, alcohol was certainly more than available, especially in Eastern Europe. If you have the stereotypes of the drunken uh, Russian with his vo- empty bottles of vodka the, uh, that's, that's not just a modern image that certainly goes many generations back uh, and the fact that many of them even s- many Jews sold liquor the Jews rarely drank themselves meaning drinking in any serious professional way they had access to it but drunkenness was for the going until the modern day until the modern day. Modern day Jews are more assimilated, so they, they behave like goyim, and then they, they become drunks with the best of them. Um, one of the ways, we're talking about Jews who've moved now to the east, and to centered around what we think of as Poland today, uh, so one of the ways that they remained insular and focused on themselves and on Torah was uh, this language that starts to emerge. Of course, the language that is, is actually by the 16th century, when we find, we find our heroes, uh, is, is in full use, of course, is Yiddish. So let's take a minute to consider Yiddish. Yiddish traces its roots all the way back, actually many centuries back to the 10th century, 900s is the earliest record we have of people having anything resembling Yiddish. It's traced back to the Rhineland. As your geography? Can you picture Europe a little bit? I should, I should really provide you with maps so you can picture a lot of this. The, uh, the Rhineland is the area that kind of um, hugs the border between France and Germany, so it's in more Western Germany. Uh, we've been talking about the Rhineland communities of mains and spires, worms, vermes. Their mazes. The I know, done. really, Mamas. For this class, we need everything. The Jews have been everywhere, so we need we need to understand everything. Even you know, we're gonna take a detour down to Yemen soon enough too. What? We will. Literally? Well, we are. I, I don't know about you, but I'm vicariously reliving all of this as we go through it. So, yes, you know, Ogin- yes. as I said, vicariously we are. Yeah. The, uh, so, meanwhile, back in the Rhineland, back in the Rhineland, uh, they start speaking Yiddish, and eventually the language will spread to Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, it'll not only reinforce their isolation, it'll also help their self autonomy. If you have one language and nobody else speaks it, so you're kind of your own people. Your own your own government, your own your own and, and, and the non Jews tend to stay away. What? What happened to Hebrew? Uh, Hebrew had not been a spoken language, it was not the language of, of, of human discourse how for how centuries. For I mean, don't you remember the Second Temple Period? They didn't speak you they didn't, didn't speak, speak Hebrew, Hebrew anymore, they spoke No, they did not. They in spoke Aramaic. Greek. And then Aramaic and many other languages, but Hebrew was spoken in the context of learning. That's why it's the language of the Mishnah. But you ever notice that the Talmud itself is not in, in Hebrew, it's, it's in Aramaic? Well, that's a story for the modern era. And that's an extraordinary story of, the, that's exactly what the project was, that's an extraordinary story of, of regenerating uh, dormant language It wasn't entirely dormant, of course, because Jews have been learning in it for centuries, forever, but not as a spoken language, not as a living, organic, breathing kind of a language as it's spoken today, which was and remains a mixed blessing. Meaning, the story is not all positive. In fact, from a Torah perspective, it's very negative, but it's also remarkable that they could recreate. There's no other example of a people who resuscitate a dormant language like this and turn it into the language of commerce, of, of industry, of, of, of functioning societal today, interaction. Today, what is considered Is it still considered Yiddish, or is it Hebrew Well, it depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. From a, again, from a Torah I perspective, I, it depends on who you ask. I don't know. It's a charged, ideologically charged question. If you ask a Zionist, they would say, "What are you talking about? There's no alternative. It's only Ivrit. If you talk about a Torah Jew, he would say, "What are you talking about? It's only Lashon Hakodesh, which I've mentioned many times, is a cousin of no, Modern Yiddish." One of the reasons why you're ahead of us, and it's not really our topic now, even though I'm talking about Yiddish. But one of the reasons you hear the Torah Torah personalities talk about the importance of Yiddish kites, you know, how's this Yiddish kite? That the language is somehow conflated with the culture, with the practice of Torah itself. That's not coincidental. Because if you have Yiddish, Yiddish became a language of Torah learning, and of Torah discourse. And if you have that, then often you have everything else that follows. And if you lack that, then often everything else goes too. Um, there was what they called the Hamaha the, HaSafot, the war of the languages at the beginning of the 20th century especially, where the Torah world was being set upon by secular influences. And one of them was this new language, Ivrit that was attacking uh, Torah at its, at its core, and those who held out often did so with Yiddish. Arguably today, some of the strongest uh, the sectors, some of the strongest sectors in Torah are strong because they still, like in Hasidic circles I'm thinking of, uh, they speak Yiddish. And that way they retain their own culture, much like I'm describing back in these days that they were simply secluded and, and removed from the rest of the world, and thereby you assimilated much less. Yeah, Go ahead, when, That's exactly what I was gonna ask. Do, like in B'nai B'rach, do they learn Yiddish? Well, no. it was something that, again, that many Hasidim continue to do so, even though it's an uphill battle, because um, the modern language is all over the place and it's dominant. Um, by the 1980s, the Litvish, non uh Haredi world struggled to maintain Yiddish until effectively Rav Shach would come out and say uh, that this is a battle we're not gonna win. And even though Yiddish was, is, is still preferred, and people try to speak it, but practically speaking, most Litvish Jews uh, their major languages, and, and and even the language that they learned it is Ivrit. But, but my, yeah, but my kids, would, they'll, they'll probably not. Yeah, why would are a Jew who knows Yiddish? Um, no, no, sure like they they not even hear The Yiddish. original. Your kids probably wouldn't hear Yiddish unless hear. you sent them to cheder or to certain schools where the teachers speak Yiddish. Uh, if you became Hasidic, for example, then you, then maybe. Yeah. Why would a Jew? Or yiddish, um, reject the language of people, even if he, if starts, no embracing, if he starts embracing if he starts embracing modern culture then that just yeah but the, then then, then yiddish, the language, the language and the culture go together what's that the language of yiddish itself is a result of assimilation no not really let me continue the story of how yiddish came into being i i, I it's the not quite right, right. No, no 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 let's like this yiddish what is yiddish let's define our terms yiddish is a combination of what they call Middle High German. That means anything to anybody here. You know, they're different dialects. Just like in English, we have different dialects of English. So, too, they have different dialects of German. This one's called Middle High German. So German- also referred to as Teich. Teich, which actually became another Hebrew word for uh, translation of the, uh, of the Parsha often into the spoken language. It also incorporates Hebrew, mostly Hebrew, and some Aramaic it's written in the basic characters we call ashuris characters that like the same letters that the torah is written in the term yiddish itself starts to be used more frequently we're now we're ahead of ourselves only around the 18th century they were speaking this language now but they didn't actually refer to it as yiddish yid being of course an abbreviation for Yehudi, jew yid jew. Um, sometimes applied to us by anti-Semites derogatorily. Now, for a long period, um, these dialects are the the primary spoken language of Ashkenazi Jews. Because the Sephardi Jews uh, were separated from this world, that's why we said earlier that they developed... Separate traditions including Ladino, different, different dialects of Ladino, but across the Ashkenazi world, world, one of the ways you identified as Ashkenazi was by the spoken Yiddish language. I mean, even today, old timers, often you see if they have any, any uh, Yiddish in them, from the old world, from the shtetl, they often connect by Yiddishisms, by Yiddish phrases, if not being able to actually speak Yiddish, which is increasingly rare. The old Borscht belt, the old community, even the assimilated Jews, but if they had some Yiddish in them, it becomes an immediate point of cultural identification. Have you seen Burrow Park? I'm saying Yiddish, every no. Jew over there, every no Burrow Park, Finding He speaks Yiddish in Burrow Park, but that you have a bubble, you have an exceptional bubble. I'm talking about the world at large. Also right over here. Again, in, in, in communities, but I'm... I'm, I'm indicating to you that a lot of these are um, Hasidic and thereby very, very isolationist communities. That's one of the ways, one of their strategies to preserving it. Now, so much great Torah would be learned and taught in Yiddish so that Yiddish itself takes on a Kedusha that we would compare with, remember the old Greek and Aramaic? Which are other languages, but who have, because of their association with Torah, take on a quasi kedusha. They're not quite lashon Kodish, but they they approach it. Um, so that's why this term Yiddishkeit becomes synonymous with observance. Oh yeah, they, they're, they're very. He's very weak in his Yiddishkeit. It means he doesn't only. Uh, not only does he lack the language skills, but he's not he's not holding. He's not keeping Torah. Now. Um, we, we find um, often other languages filtering into Yiddish. If you've spoken to, you just mentioned Borough Park, in Borough Park Yiddish, you'll hear a lot of English, whereas in, in Hebrew Hasidic circles, you'll hear, you'll hear a lot more modern Hebrew, meaning that it clearly is porous and kind of um, flexible enough that it'll, it'll it, it integrate other languages. We find that, for example, with words in Yiddish, uh, the word "bench" to bench to say a bracha, say a blessing. Some say, some in studying the language, linguists um, suggest that the um, term actually is based on Latin. The ba- Latin term "benedicere," benediction, right? Which is benching. Um, some say that uh, another Latin phrase, the name angel, might be might 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 be connected to the word "angelo," angel, and like that. But since According to an earlier class that we talked about here, we understand that most all languages in the world eventually uh, are derivations of Lashon Akodesh. What goes around comes around. These are all derivations of derivations that have their source back in Hebrew. Um, We know that Yiddish, listen to this, you're going to enjoy this next bit on Yiddish. uh, A little, little, little. comment on this, the Kiddusha of Yiddish in Yiddish words is evident when you study it. And maybe in one time in your lives you'll actually study the language, it's fantastic, it's so rich, there's so much going on, it's such a, among other things, it's um, the words capture their meaning in an onomatopoeia kind of a way. It's just absolutely gishmak, no, I mean, what a word, gishmak, it just, it conveys the idea and then some, right, it's a very expressive language. Um, what is the word ancle? Have you ever heard people refer to their Anala or their Anacle? Anacle means grandchild. Anacle is a term for grandchild, right? Uh Lazarus Schlita, can speak very proudly about his his many grandchildren. They actually just put up one of those, you know, like in Times Square, they have the the um, digital display of the of the national debt as it's, you know constantly, uh, exponentially increasing so I, they have a similar digital thing in the Lazarus house for grandchildren uh, anyway so he has, he has many eniklach to be proud of and um, one, one uh, drusha that um, says what does the term enikl come from it doesn't seem to connect to any known Hebrew word or um, German word so here's a beautiful explanation it actually may come from the Parsha of the burning bush the sneh where Moshe approaches the burning bush and he sees the sne nenu ukal. Listen to the words. Hasne enenu ukal was not consumed. E'neinu ukal enikol. And the uh, the word is that when one has grandchildren and when one sees that one's grandchildren have Yiddishkeit, have embraced the culture of, the, of Torah, so then you know that the burning bush will not be consumed. Your legacy, in other words, will not be consumed. It will be sustained uh, down to eternity, down to the days of Mashiach, through your en- Uh Another illustration of this. Does that make sense? You're with me? Okay. I love this. I don't know this, this adds such such meaning. Uh, another one is we wish one another yiddish Let's say when somebody has has kids, what do you think? Mazel tov! A lot of Yiddish Nachas. Have you a bracha before, so actually um, where that comes from is um, Asav has a grandson by the name of Nachas, right? So as opposed to Asav's Nachas, which we wouldn't wish on anybody, we wish each other Yiddish Yaakov's variation of Nachas, his kind of grandchildren. We learned this word uh, last week on Sunday. Um, this is one of. of uh, Steyer's words for the day: Davinin, Remember, the, remember this—the uh, source of the word davening. Daven uh, may be based on the Aramaic deavuhoen, because we learned d'avuhon, our fathers of our fathers. What did Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, after all, bring the world? Shachris and Thamariv. They brought us davening. So we Davin as a way of remembering back, going back to our avos. Um, th- this duhiki, What do they call one of the, one of these in Yiddish? A Yarmulke, what does that come from? So they contracted two Aramaic words, Yare and Malka. Yare and Malka, fearing the king, Yarmulke, which of course reminds us to live both with Shemaim in the presence of the king. king? What? No, Malka is king in Aramaic. Aramaic, I said. What's queen in Aramaic? Um, uh, Malthasar. The, uh, Christians claim that Yoshka stood after his death and flew away. Uh, we call such a thing, or here's another Yiddish word that I don't mean to comment on, a baba Maisa. literally, what is it, Misa? Grandmother's, grandmother's story. story, right, a baba maisa. So we say that it didn't <coughs> happen, right? Yoshka stood after his death and he flew his way, and so the expression in Yiddish is nish, is a great expression, nisht gestoigen und nisht geflogen." Everybody now with me. Come on, come on, little little, little, little learning here. Here, nicht gesteigen und geflogen. If that's not fun, come on, really. I'm scared. I'm scared. actually scared. And it literally means it doesn't. It didn't stand and it didn't fly. Okay, yes, It didn't stand. It didn't fly. Uh, we say we say in other words, uh, the pasuk in Mishle, Rabos Machavos Belevish. Uh, many thoughts in the, in the heart of man uh, right and, oh, there's another, another idea many thoughts in the heart of man that are just in vain and toil um, in Yiddish the way they express this man plans and God laughs which means that um, not that Hashem is ever laughing um, mockingly at us but that with all of our highfalutin ideas about the way we're going to run the world Kadosh Baruch was really in charge you uh, missed the whole section. Are you catch, uh, make, Remind me to get uh, this beautiful piece on Yiddish uh, that I, I took from um, some research, uh, looking it up. Anyway, the Yiddish, the the, uh, the richness of the language, the the kedusha that's inherent, all the great uh, thoughts that go into it are there. And um, unlike other world events, nishchostogen and nishkafleugen, Yiddish really does stand and it does fly. In 1551. Um, another major institution is established in Poland. The Jews elect their first chief rabbi in Poland. He's in charge of um, not only communal affairs but all all aspects of Jewish financial dealings and any legal issue so that we are talking about is the Jews in Poland become such a um, a dominant community, they have semi autonomy. They almost rule themselves, not entirely. I don't want to overstate it either because they were, sub- they were ultimately subjects of the greater Polish kingdom, Commonwealth, uh, and they didn't have to pay taxes to that Commonwealth. But all things considered, um, it was actually pretty decent for the Jews in Poland for a stretch there, for a certain period of time. And the general institution is called, a very famous institution called, anybody heard of it? The Vad Arba Aronsos. The, uh, the Council of the Four Lands, because really Poland that we think of today was actually a, um, um, was a, really a grouping of four different areas, four districts together. And the Jews um, lived in these four districts and actually semi-ruled them. Uh, today we would find most of them in Poland and what we call Lithuania. Um, the capital was in Lublin. We've learned, who was in Lublin that we met recently? The Maharshal, of Shlomo the cousin of the Ramah, was of great rav in Lublin. Um, and the institution, hold on for just a second are um, It lasted all the way from 1580, after the chief rabbi was elected, all the way till 1764, not quite 200 years, which in the scheme of our pretty miserable history, that's pretty good. We had our own council of the four lands and, and enjoyed a certain amount of, listen, What's going on in the arba Ha'arba Ha'aratzos? You've got local leaders sitting, they're discussing halachic policy. Halach is enforceable in courts of law. You went to base team to adjudicate. People were living a Torah life much more so than we usually can today. Base team was much more of a reality in people's lives. Today, sadly, people uh, violate the Torah prohibition and go to secular courts to adjudicate. Uh, They were in charge of local taxation and other (coughs) community issues. Are you, what are going to say? What were the four managers what districts that congregated there? Uh, I should be able to answer that, and I don't have an answer. I, certainly Galicia is one of them. I mean, they were, it's, it, it, um, Galicia, spelled oh, by. Galicia, oh, which, is, which is Eastern, it's really the area of Eastern Poland moving into Ukraine. I mean, it doesn't conform to most maps today. But like that, that illustrates. Right. Like different districts that were heavily Jewish. And this Vod, this community, ruled over all four of these. Okay. That's the idea um how um, long the lines of the whole thing to go to uh, secular court? Uh, if you're to right, what's called erkaos, yeah. And would one be a lawyer? That's a really good question. Could one be a lawyer uh, in a secular legal system? It's at least to Shiloh. Certainly, there is room for being a lawyer if you're a from person to help, let's say, for example, from Jews having to navigate the minefield of the secular legal system, which they often are forced to do. For example, uh, let's say you want to set your own um, will of your estate, and you want it to have validity in the secular courts, but they have a different system of wills than the halakhic system. Among other examples, one of the most obvious ones is that technically a Jewish will, wouldn't, a man would not bequeath anything to his daughters. Or his wife, for that matter. And whereas in the secular world, uh, husbands and wives usually have mutual ownership of their estate, and that the inheritance would be div- divvied out equally among all children. Uh, that's not does not conform to halacha. So if you wanted to have a document that somehow conforms to both systems and w- would be effective and enforced in the world, and let's say you know, and you needed to somehow take it to the secular courts too. So there are ways of writing up. We actually have we we, we have a will. And not, not that we have so much money, but we, we at least have our apartment, <coughs> and um, we have a, a halakhic version that acknowledges also. And there's also a legal version in the same, so there's room for a lawyer. It just you have to really know what you're doing, and there certainly would be violations for a lawyer, um, and people don't always realize that. Yeah, good question. In Jewish if a person has no sons, does he go to his to provide? Uh, not necessarily. The, according to the laws of Yerusha, it goes to other people. There's a whole pecking order. It goes to brothers and uncles and all, uh, male, male uh, family members, not to female family members. Wow. That's why there's a ksuba. A ksuba takes care of the wife, but that's a specific subcategory. It's a document. doesn't mean, what's that? Ksuba is the, is the marital uh, document. And the yep. What's that? How does you know, do that well, there's an estate. She collects the super from his estate, from his what's called Yerusha. Barak? No, we have a friend who's he's, he's a lawyer, and uh, I, I don't know, but I mean I imagine... He's not. clearly very sensitive to all these issues. Not every lawyer is. This is a reason that women don't collect, because they're assumed to have a husband that provides for them, so they need their father providing for them anything. That was an assumption then, and you're correct to question it today, because maybe the world is organized in a different way. So that's why, other you know, it's legitimate in halacha. Then potentially for the husband and the wife to have mutual ownership of their estate, you then you'd have to write that in some kind of tricky formulation that's that's consistent with halacha, but also would be recognized in the law of the land. Um, the Polish society then, because of the the um, Polish kings, the secular, the non-Jewish kings, their liberal policies create this life that was. I don't to overstate it. It's not that it's it's not that they're beloved. It's not that the Jews are uh, somehow are, suffer or or don't suffer persecution. That things are bad for Jews everywhere they are in the world. Um, not so different today. Maybe oh well, no, that's not true. Today we enjoy greater liberal, we have, uh, greater tolerance in the world. Even if they like to shoot us in our synagogues in Copenhagen, uh, the latest the latest outrage. The um, the yes uh, yesterday right. I'm right. right. So you missed all the Jews and hit a civilian. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. you're so up to date. I know on the media. I you. know it's terrible, right? The uh, he's teasing me. I can tell. The uh, anyway, anyway, um, but Poland's better than most, and therefore that starts to attract more and more Jews, logically. And as there's a greater influx of Jews into Polish countryside, um, they will form this body of self-government. Um, only in the in the in 1764. Um, when they failed to deliver collective taxes to the non-Jewish hosts, and the non-Jews say, uh-uh, doesn't work that way, they disbanded the Vahad. They disband the Vad Arba but disbanding the Vad doesn't disband Polish Jewish life by the 1760s, when all the infrastructure of Jewish life is very, very established at that point. Um, Poland is really the center, a center at least, of Jewish life, to the point that um, the following remarkable little anecdote of history was possible, something that we would, have, we would think, no way, not in a million years, but no indeed. There was a figure by the name of Rav Shaul Vol, his descendants in the world today, Rav Shaul Vol, who's the grandson of Rav Meir of Padua, who you might remember from the whole controversy over the printing press. Rav Meir had come out with his version of the Rambam and then a non-Jewish publisher wanted to make the money on it. So that that was the grandfather. So this is the grandson who was already in Poland at this point and he was a wealthy and influential uh, uh, Jew. And the legend says that Rav Shalval was actually king of all of Poland for a day. The day was on August 18th, 1587. And the the, the background story is less interesting, was actually there was transition, the previous king had passed away, the new king was not yet ready, and the uh, Lithuanian nobility um, saw an opportunity, right? When the king dies unexpectedly, a way to repay a favor to Rochelle Vall who had covered him financially, he said, okay, you now can be king, which is a nice thing to put on your resume. I'll tell you, you know you, you know how much these former presidents make when they go on the speaking circuit, right? So yeah, I was king for a day, yeah, my fee is. Um, so what it, whether it's true or not, what it does reflect, the fact that it could be believed by some reflects in general on the overall Jewish prestige, the, the prestige that Jews enjoyed in Poland during this period. Uh, And one other indication of the greatness of Poland uh, as as a Jewish center is the immense and diverse Torah that was found in Poland. Now, I just recently went over my notes and if you can believe this, I tried to pare it down even more at the risk of over-inundating you with great names and personalities. And sometimes it's another name I can't take it all in. I've really pared this down to, to a few. Uh, but these are some immense personalities that you'll hear about in the course of your own Jewish learning. Uh, so let, let, let's, let's uh, meet some of, the, some of the great figures of this time. If we could take a time ship back, we would want to meet all these individuals. Let's say we traveled... Um, to Prague, and actually he moved from Prague to Venice to Lublin to Poznan. a lot of them were very mobile. It's a time of a lot of mobility, Jews moving around. We would meet uh, one of the great figures, Rav Mordechai Yaffe, who authors a great work I referred to recently called the Levush. He's referred to as Levush, Levush Mordechai. Uh, The Levush, he wrote a bunch of books, but the Levush Malchus was actually a 10 volume elaborate halachic code that where the Shulchan Aruch was brief, the is, is is elaborate. He names each of the 10 volumes for a different garment in Mordechai's royal dress, based on the Megillah. So you have, you have for example, um, a, a commentary on the Reqenadi called the Levush Evan Yekara, which is based on the Pasuk, and each one is a different kind of garment. Levush, of course, means garment. Uh, it's a halochic work. It's also a commentary on the Mordavuchim. It's a discussion of the Jewish calendar. Yeah. He, um, the, um, he was critical of Shulchan Aruch um, he felt it was it didn't have enough explanation behind the Halachos he felt it was not enough Ashkenazi post scheme he didn't like the Ramah he, was pro- he had problems with the Ramah too he thought the Ramah was too brief and didn't have enough good commentary to explanation in the end, the lavush is overshadowed by the Shulchan Aruch. Right? Clearly, people learn the Shulchan Aruch. They don't learn the lavush to the same degree, but it becomes a very important source for the commentators of the Shulchan Aruch, and it has another commentary written about it called the Elia Rabbah, which explains, which explains the lavush, and uh, that was written by Rev. Elia, El, um, Elia Shapiro, one of his students. No, wrong, not one of his students. He's a, a couple generations later. Uh briefly i'll introduce you if you were also to go back in this period his dates are the the shlomo ephraim Lunshitz. his dates are 1550 to 1619. he wrote one of the one of the preeminent commentaries on the Torah called the Kliyakar anybody learn Kliyakar on the yeah. Torah the Precious Jewel it in is the, the in the Mikros Gedolos it is fantastic if you need a good vartura, uh, almost certainly if you look up a Kliyakar you'll find some gem he um he himself, one little anecdote from his life to give him, to, to flesh out a little bit of who he was, he was a great speaker and uh, a community leader, and he lived in Lemberg, Poland, and he was known for being fearless and upfront and blunt, and he um, excoriated the community's leaders. He said they have too much passion about their, um, pursuing money and luxury and not enough for giving to other Jews. They were not so philanthropical. Can you imagine this today? A congregation rabbi who wailed into his uh, Balabatim, into his board of directors. They fire him and hire the new model, right? But he didn't care. The kliakar didn't care about that. He criticized what he said. Their spiritual pretensions that were unsupported by their midos. Yeah, you know, they claimed to be uh, so from, and uh, this is what we have. This is what they had to show for themselves. Um, also, almost exactly from the same period, another book emerges called the Tsena Ureina of Yaakov Rabino, who um, he writes the classic textbook for women that would be memorized by women, women who were, at this point in history, largely illiterate. There was no reason, they didn't go to school, so there was no reason for them necessarily to learn. Some of them could, but most of them didn't know how to read, but they didn't matter with the Ureina, with the anybody heard of the Tsena Ureina? Uh, People still learn it in the in in the world today. Um, This was what this was the textbook. It was it's called the Taich Chumash. It was um, Yiddish. uh, Afterwards, I should share with you a great little piece on the the development of Yiddish language we did earlier today. Uh, Yiddish. It's a Yiddish translation of the Chumash with uh, Medrash and Rashi and Beinu You would love it. Like it's egotically full and, and. Uh, you're allowed to men read it too. I'm just saying yeah, It's not it like me for No, no. I mean it was, it was no, it was designed as an easier accessible piece, but it's certainly profound scholarship and worthy of anybody's study. <laughs> What's it called? Sena Ura'ena, Based in the Pasuk in Shirashirim. in, uh, in uh, It's around this period in the in the in the fifteenth century, fifteenth sixteenth century, that um, a family emerges called the Rappaports. And I'm not talking about a Gadol here, I'm talking about a family who, actually, they trace their ancestry back to a certain Rav Avram Menachem Rapo of the city of Italy, Porto, Italy. Rapo Porto. Uh, he and others, they trace their lineage back to Kohanim. And it's accepted till today that if they're Kohanim named Rappaport, that's probably the best lineage you could have. Uh, they hold a, a pristine lineage that you can trace it all the way back. Many would say that if you want to do pinyon a ben, which means taking a real, what we call a kohen miyuchas, somebody who can trace their lineage as a kohen, uh, you would ideally want to get a Rappaport family member to give the money to the Rappaport, or, or any one of the 24 matanos lekohanim that are still that, that many of which are relevant today. What's that? Kohen ironically may or may not mean kohen yeah by the way you know that a lot of kohanim aren't if just because of halal, halal, halal issues oh, sure. but right? that could, that could be true for the rap board's truth fair enough but they claim not they claim to have be able to descend it it's a doubt there is no we don't there's no 100 proof because of all the various suffolk periods of history hard to know 100 um, percent. however i'm just bringing this in to talk about kohanim uh, there is a pretty interesting uh, study that's done in the world today of genetic analysis of Kohanim, have you heard of this? Yeah. Comparing the Y chromosomes of hundreds of Kohanim from around the world, they've come to the conclusion, they, they, at least the studies found that 80% of the Kohanim studied in the sample descend from what the study concludes one from one common male ancestor who lived over 3,000 years ago. But that's interesting. Which common male ancestor could they have just, Aaron Cohen possibly? <laughs> um, if you're interested in the research, I refer you to a certain Dr. Carl Skuretsky, uh from, from, from uh, Haifa University, who uh, based in the and it and leave for him and his seed, his descendants after him, a, an eternal uh, pact of, of the Kohani that, uh, that Aaron the Cohen and his descendants have, it seems that there's, some kind of, uh, there, 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 there's something we can say. Of course, all of this, if you are curious, how, what, what is this, how does this impact halacha? As I said, ideally we want a Kohen miyuchas. Can we have today a Kohen serving the base of Mikdash, um, even without a base of Mikdash itself, doing korbanos this is a subject of debate that we'll get to when we get to the 19th century, because there was a, an, a minority opinion that asserted, Rav Tzviherz Kalisher, who asserted that, why yes, indeed we can bring um, korbanos in the in the area of the basic even without a temple rebuilt uh, and, and then he addresses among the many the myriad issues that come up um, well what do you do if you don't have certifiable kohanim how do you circumnavigate navigate that one even during the time of the of Mikdash, there was a period of time that you were korbanos outside of the of indeed part of the analysis is based on that we talked about that here too so why would you be allowed to have the korbanos well among other so doubts among other doubts who's a proper kohen and if they're a Cohen, well, how did they get proper tahara? Lacking ashes, to paradum, <laughs> and 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 a myriad issues that come up. But uh, okay. Do the best you can. <laughs> okay, another great figure, one of the one of the must reads in, in the Talmud. Can somebody grab? Maybe like, grab it. Grab a gemara from the back of the room. Um, is the is Rav Shmuel Eliezer Idols, yeah, who any is more. any gemara is great. Uh, oh, wait, I need in the back. Is there is there commentary in the back? That should be. If there's a little bit in the back, he should be there. Uh, Rav Meizel's, Rav Idols, excuse me, Rav Idols is known to us and through all of history as the Maharsha, the great Maharsha, 1555 to 1631. He also lived in lots of places. He was in Krakow and Posen and Helm and Lublin and Ostrak. He was related, he was, thank you very much, he's a cousin, here's what he looks like. Uh, He's (coughs) right in our Gemaras after the Rosh. Major commentary, um, related by, he's a cousin by his mo- uh, from his mother's side um, with the Maharal, Maharal Maharsha. He writes two commentaries here and you should be familiar with this. The larger letters, you can see here, it's a little bit faint to make out, but in the larger uh, text, it's commentary mostly on Rashi and Tosfos. And he'll bring, for example, a Badibura Maschil in the starting uh, words of the Tosfos, he'll cite the fragment of Tosvos that he wants to comment on, and, and gives and, and helps you out. Often the Marashas is just a great tool if you can't figure out Tosfos. He'll elucidate or he'll comment on a difficulty in in, in Rashi or Tosfos. The smaller text you can see over here. I don't know if you can see but <laughs> it, this it smaller. You can't tell from the typeset, but this is smaller. Is a Perush on a one of the early great works on a commentary. <laughs> The Enyakov already came out. The Maharsha is another, is another one, and later editions of the Enyakov would include oh. the Maharsha. You're, tr- you're saying it's because it's, it's not in sync chronologically. <laughs> is the Enyakov has commentary. <laughs> correct, correct. It features the Maharsha prominently because the Marsha is so big, wow. so significant that, uh, okay. Uh, but, it, it, the, I mean, I know that, for example, when Rav Shechter the Moayu, shas, he chazers with Gemara, Rashitos, and Marsha. <laughs> just to give you a sense of how fundamental the Marsha is. Uh, to all under- it, people say that um, it's indispensable if you want to understand the shot of the Gemara. Sometimes see, people say it's a given that you have not understood a sugya unless you've dealt with the kushias, the, the difficulties raised by the Marsha. Kazanish said that if the Marsha's commentary would be neglected, then basic shot would be lost. He himself has some, has a great line. I, I, I work this into my notes. He has a comment. He's, he's working through um, Gemara and Sanhedrin, and when he gets to a certain section in the sixth chapter, he stops his commentary, and he says, I won't write any more chidushim, uh, any more ideas, because and this is very much not, what, you know, uncharacteristically, he said, I didn't write in the base medrash, my notes, while I was away in Berlin, I, I had to be away on business in Berlin, and therefore I can't include my kiddushim because I didn't review them adequately. And so there's like a hole in the Maharshah there because of intellectual honesty. There are a couple of figures from this period called the Maharam, there's Rabbi Meir of Lublin and Krakow. There's another figure called the Maharam, who's Rabbi Mendel Benavigdor, of, also of Krakow, uh, not the Maharam of Krakow, I mean the Maharam of Krakow. Okay, they're uh, approximate contemporaries, about from this time. Um, the latter Maharam is famous mainly for this, the following. He develops the iska that most people use in the world. What, what is a iska? There is a Torah prohibition against usury, charging, uh, charging interest on a loan. But in order for commerce to take place, people need to lend money, and in order to spur business, they need some proceeds from that loan because otherwise they're not going to lend money. It's one of these vicious cycles. So the way that the Torah world, and it's extremely complicated, and I'm not going to do it justice right now, but the Maharam develops an accepted heteriska, literally means a permission to do business, that works as follows, as follows. The prohibition of lending on interest is if it's a loan. However, we could redefine the relationship and say it's not a loan. It's a business partnership, and in a lot of businesses you know how it works. One person puts up all the capital, and the other one puts up a lot of the work. Okay. That's how a lot of it. Anybody in retail here? That's how retail works. One guy you know, opens the store and does all of the work, uh, but he needs funding. He can't do it on his own. So the, the, the bankers, the people behind him are, are bankrolling him, and, um, and then they split the proceeds, and the guys, the money people, often make out very well. Certainly for their efforts, they make a lot more for for the the, the time they put in. Um, So he, if you use, if you sign the iska, you've redefined your loan relationships as business partnerships to the point that when you're taking extra proceeds of the arrangement, that's not interest anymore. That's one explanation. There's more to be said on the subject. Don't let that suffice, but This was a major breakthrough, and it's what – if you go to a bank in Israel, which are owned by Jews, the the only way they can exist is with the iska. And you see there's a framed document on the wall of every bank in Israel. You'll notice it when you go in next. That's a iska. There's a question about how well they function, and they're controversial because many people using them – it's like an ornament that decorates it, but they don't necessarily – since they're not – from Jews, they're not halakhically observant Jews, uh, they may not be using it adequately, but that's, um, that's for that reason, Rabbi uh, the among other post can say, better to not re- um, fall into debt with the banks, better not to rely on the heter iska if you possibly can avoid it. Now thinking, speaking of lending <coughs> on interest, just taking a moment to consider what this means for the Jews. You remember the Jews for centuries now, as we moved off the land in the period of the Gaonim, a lot of the time, our source of income is in the area of money, since the church prohibited usury between Christians. So they often made Jews the tax collectors and the bankers and the money dealers, which was not always a, an attractive job. Um, it helped the fact that the Jews were internationally connected, and therefore we could do lots of things that the other peoples couldn't do. We could uh, trade and go travel and all and and and. Um, Now, in the period of the Renaissance, this position as moneylenders, as people who had connections with Jews literally all over the world, um, is actually very beneficial. And we find that the immense um, geographical and economical expansion that starts taking place in the 16th century. I mean, those of you who learned American history know the American angle, the the, the, uh, conquering of the colonizing of of the Americas by the European powers. But that wasn't just in America, it was virtually all over the world. The Jews have, relative to our numbers, a disproportionate stake in all of the above. You remembered we mentioned that, um, if, whether or not Christopher Columbus himself was Jewish or had some Jewish ancestry, certainly a lot of his voyage was bankrolled by Jews. Uh this is um they are majorly responsible for the tiny country of the netherlands becoming an international world power never wonder why the dutch suddenly are all you know relative to their size at least or disproportionately, well they they were very um involved successfully involved in international trading and colonizing and the jews had a huge role in that uh, what's called the west indies the dutch easy Not the West Indies. West Indies is one thing. The Dutch East India Company was, the Jews were central in that, in all of that. In transportation, um, they were patrons of the arts, they were were all over. Uh, Among other things, uh, they were um, Rembrandt, a Dutch, very famous Dutch uh, painter, painted a huge number, disproportionate to their numbers, of Jewish subjects. The Jews were so central in the (coughs) whole moving and shaking of the society, Um, This is, I guess some people count this as positive. Oh, good, Jews have opportunities and they can make a living. That's nice. Uh, It also gives way, it becomes part of the international uh, canard that they spread that Jews are part of an international conspiracy. And it's a banking conspiracy and we're really secretly plotting to overthrow the world. There's not yet a work in the world called the... um, protocols of the elders of Zion, but that's going to come around, and it's not disconnected from all these phenomena. No, it's, it's pretty late, I want For sure, but its antecedents are already evident here. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> We're going in our timeship and meeting these great figures from 16th, 17th century. Um, now, going a little bit later, 1561 to 1640 are the dates of Rav Yol Sirkis, who's the author of the Bach, the Bayt Hadash, yeah, uh, I know, Yeah, no, seriously. Well, the Bach, we certainly know in the Gemara. Uh, but actually, more important than his commentary, in the, in the, in the Gemara, he's one of the great emendations going and correcting our texts. Um, but his, his greater work, the Ba'it Hadash, is a commentary on the tour. It's one of the major commentaries on the tour, and that, until today, is what, if you go to Kolel, if you spend the time in Kolel in your lives, you'll learn the Bach, and the, together with the... Beit Yosef. On either side of the top, surrounding the tour, uh, this is this is just basic standard uh, staples for Jewish learning. Uh, the, the Bach lived in Bells, Brisk, and Krakow. He actually is buried in Krakow, just right right near the Ramah. He um, one of his issues was he was very critical of people who only relied on the Shulchan Aruch. He said, "What there's a there's shas and poskim and there's shilas and shuvas. There's a whole <laughs> wealth of." Uh, of literature out there, and to correct this, the Bayt Hadash, his commentary, tries to give you all that background. There's so much more to understand, more than just the bottom line halacha. Um, in addition to um, um, uh, commenting and correcting our, our text of the Talmud, he does the same for the text of the Rif and the Rush. He ha- he's happens to be one of these wealthy, Talman Echachamim, and therefore he supports his own students. He also supports Talman Echachamim. Many people, he had, like, like if you picture Rebbe Rabbi Yehuda Anasi in the Mishnah, um, who hosted everybody at his table, that was the Bach's house. Uh, the raivet was similar. Can you people go visit these people's graves here? The Bach is a well-visited grave. I've guided there before in Krakow because it's centrally located. There is something that always... Um, irks me a little bit, the feeling of unfairness that just because some graves are conveniently located, that they get a lot of uh, people visiting them, uh, whereas, you know, I, I, I was thrilled to go to yoshua Bin Nun in the middle of Chares in this Arab village, but we were the first, when we went last, uh, two summers ago, we were the first group in months, a Jewish group that went there, because it's in a, it's in a hostile Arab village, but the Bach is one of the, one of the tombs that does get good, you know. Are they all like be between, like, like, there's one here no, no. In, in Krakow, it's tiny, and you got everybody right there. In fact, you have you have the Rama, you have the Bach, and then you have our next figure I'm about to get to, uh, just down the way. With with Ben Nun, is that with the Rizal, uh, like, uh, make that official, or is that just? No, that's not a Rizal uh, approved place. It's possibly wrong, but it does make a certain amount of sense that I can justify in another discussion. He has an interesting machlokes with Rashi. Rashi says that a child, when he finishes the Torah, should immediately learn Gemara. The Bach disagrees. He says, no, you got to know all of Tanakh. Once you know Tanakh, then you can graduate to Gemara, but not before. Famous, famous disagreement. Um, the other figure, the other let's say huge figure in the cemetery in Krakow from this period is Rav Yom Tov Lipin Heller, who we've met. We met him when he was a student learning by the Maharal, and the Maharal's uh, Mishnah study circles encouraged him to write his great work, the Tosvos Yantif. On the now, the way to understand the Tos, why is he called the Tosvos Yantif? His name is Yom Tov Ilipin Heller. Um, he's the Tosvos if Ravavadi B'Bharata Nora is like Rashi on one side. So the Tosvos Yantiv is kind of like the Tosvos on the other side of the page as a way of almost imitating the, uh, the daphth of the Gemara. Uh, His project is to encourage more Jews to learn Mishnah every day. He suffered a lot. Most of our Gedolim did. I include this just trying to round the picture. There's a whole episode in 1629, when he was imprisoned and then sentenced to death and barely got out. He was saved by influential Jews, but almost died. He um, survives the Shmelnitsky massacres, we're gonna learn about soon enough. and because it was that generation's equivalent of the Holocaust, it left a lot of women as a gunos, whose husbands were clearly dead or murdered, but they couldn't, they had no proof of that. So, in order to have them remarried, the Tosos Yantif found, um, found kulas to liberate many of these women and enable them to remarry. He actually wrote uh, his own slichos and a memorial tefillah about Tachvitat, which, which is coming around the corner. Uh, we'll get to it tomorrow, Ras Hashem. And so, it, tomorrow's is some significant material. I encourage you if you can be present. Tachvatat Shabtai Tzvi. Yeah, the um, he has a great. He wrote a Mishabeirach when he was a rav in Vienna, um, praising people who refrain from talking in shul. Yeah, pay that, that's actually apparently a big issue in these days people are not very good about that a lot, of, a lot of schmoozing in shul uh, with, all the, with all the other good developments uh, that, was not a, that was not our proud moment there's a very famous story that maybe you heard as you were kids about the Tostos uh the, the, uh, the, sorry, the, the, yeah, the He um there was a famous miser who lived in Krakow and everybody hated him nasty guy and the miser died one day and they didn't know where to bury him, and so everybody turned to the sort of Lippman Heller, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, you can put him at the far end of the cemetery in a, an obscure place." And a few days later, suddenly, the story came out that that so-called miser, who everybody hated, was a secret sadik. Who'd been supporting quietly all the poor people in town? And suddenly, when, the, when it became clear that the poor people had no bread to eat anymore because the man had passed away, suddenly they realized that they'd lost a tzaddik. And Rav Heller was totally shaken. And as a kapara and asking, asking for his forgiveness, he asked, um, When I die, please bury me next to the so called miser. I want, I, I'm, I want to be zokhah to be buried next to the tzaddik. Um, it's interesting. He had money. But um, he never took Parnassa from all of his service to the public. And when he died, the Tosafist was penniless. He didn't have enough money to buy Tahrichin and uh, they buried him there. Um, he has some famous descendants. Among them is the Ktosis uh, one of the great commentaries in the Choshen Mishpat. Uh, Daniel, want to go to Yemen? Nudging, nudging. Yes. Okay. Sixteen, eighteen. The, Right now, they're a big, a big basis of uh, terrorism. It's true. A civil, war right civil war in, in Yemen, yeah. The, uh, it was periodically in history not a happy place, even for the famous old Jewish community. In 1618, terrible time for Yemenite Jews. There's a, the Sultan decrees expulsion and destruction of the Yemenite Jewish community. Um, this is a time that they're learning that Kabbalah has reached Yemen, and they, they, many of them embrace Kabbalah, um, but uh, they, they suffer terrible persecution. Um, they survive, but uh, there'll be terrible decrees. There's a decree, for example, that all Jewish orphans are converted to Islam. Later on, the same century, in 1676, there's an even worse decree called the Golos Musa. Musa was a terrible place. It's a desert parched, arid country, um, and all Jews were exiled who wouldn't convert to Islam and it was uninhabitable, and they lost all their money, and many of them died of starvation, and they lived there for five years. I mean, they're not exactly concentration camps, but it's not so far off either. Uh, it lasts all the way until the death of the Sultan, at which point many people had died anyway. Uh, they were all reduced to poverty. Um, this, together with the fact that there's controversy within the Yemenite Jewish community, causes a split. And it's a major split that lasts till today. Today <coughs> it's a more harmonious split, but there are two legitimate major groups religiously, I mean, all the Jews back in these days, of Yemenite Jews. It's an important point. Excellent. So I'll talk about Shami first. The Shami is the most dominant group today. They are extremely influenced by the Arizal. As I said, Kabbalah had moved to Yemen. They're extremely influenced by the Arizal, they have a nusach that's similar to nusach sephard, which is identified with the Zal. Um Of course, with all the Kabbalah, they're very, very Rambam based. You remember the story of the Yemenite Jews with the Rambam. Uh, so the Rambam is huge, uh, but they also learn the, the Shulchan Aruch and the Zohar. They also incorporate certain minhagim from Syrian Jewish communities. Um, that's the Shami. The second group is the Baladi. Baladi. Um, they are similar, but their Nusach follows the Rambam, meaning there's a certain amount, Kabbalah is also big for the Baladi, but they're more, their Nusach is the Rambam, but they have different practices, and they're, they're not quite as large today as the Shami. Some people say there's a third group, the problem is the third group is Puzzle, um, mm-hmm. it's a small group, it's a fringe. Called the Dardaim Doordea, based on a based on an expression about the uh, a, a generation of knowledge identified with the uh, with the with the door of the midbar. They actually, their leader, it was in the beginning of the 20th century, Rabbi Yechiel Kafach, who, I mean, he has Pyrrhic ideas. He rejects the Zohar's kedusha. He says, no, no, the only thing we accept is the pure rationalist view of Rambam and I told the story about this by standing by Rav Shlom Orbach Orbach's Kever, uh, at, when Rav Shlom El Orbach was at the Kedushin at a Yemenite wedding, um, one of the witnesses for the Chuppah was a Dordea. Anybody heard me tell the story? He was one of these Daradaim Jews and Rav Shlom Just typical of his caring, his feeling for other Jews, even if they were kofri, even heretics. um, The guy, if he was an aide for the chuppah, the chuppah would be not not valid. So how did he get around that? What did he do in a delicate situation like that? Remember this? Yeah, he said, 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 I've never been an aide for the chuppah before. Would you please trade with me? (laughs) And it was okay for the Dardaya guy to be the Messiah and Kedushin. You don't have to be kosher for that. So instead, that's how he got around it, and he preserved the man's dignity, but also made the chuppe kosher. Yeah? Um, didn't originally people think that they rejected the so, uh, because it was, uh, Nobody rejects the legitimate desire. I mean, except for like yeah. modern yeah. oriented people. This is a modern movement, very much influenced by the so, Haskalah, like by, by the Enlightenment. No. No? Nope. Not true. Much later. It's an academic kind of a thing that people say, well, I don't know about the Zohar. So it's, it's, it's a historic historiography. It's a, like a way of trying to upslug tradition. We'll how get to that when we get to the modern era. How many are As many I said, it's tiny. So t- it's hard enough to find Balaji. I know. It's a small it's a, it's a small fringe. Yeah. But why was the Zohar so easily accepted? I mean, there's no references to it anywhere in the Torah or anything. you right, right. Interesting. But the Iran, I mean... It's accepted. <laughs> it's understood that it came from Rav Shimon Yeah, they're kashis. they mentioned those who write about Rav Yaakov. Emden yeah, has kashas, the but they have, they have answers to it too. It, that about the we did this. We did this. We talked about it way back as when. As whether or not it's people enough we'll to do the right thing. <laughs> um, the Yemenite Jewish community will start to produce some great Torah personalities um, around this period. We meet Rav Shlomo Adeni, who wrote uh, one of, another great commentary on the Mishnah called the Melechis Shlomo. You could visit his kever in Hebron. <laughs> He was born in Sana, the capital of Yemen. His father was a rav there. And as a child, the family makes aliyah and then experiences tragedy. His mother dies on the way. An epidemic wipes out all of his brothers and sisters. His father finally dies. They make it to Yerushalayim. His father finally dies when he's 15 years old. So he's completely alone in the world, uh, poor orphan. But he finds a great Rebbe, he starts learning with the Shiktu Remember the Arizal co-wrote the Shiktu with Rav Bitzal Ashkenazi, uh, and later he finds another Rebbe, he, he goes and learns by Rav Chaim Vital. He or Shami? What's that? He or Shami? Oh, that's a great question. I think, no, I, I kind of, I think Shami and Baladi are later than Rav Shalom At this point, there wasn't a split in the community. It's a later development. Well, also, you, you missed one thing with the separation of Baladi and Shami. The Hishavis don't always um, say the, the, the letters the way you to say it. I said the Nusach is the major thing that distinguishes them. What's nusach? nusach? is the way they say the letters. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, that, oh, was, the, that was the Nusach, oh, yeah. I thought, I thought you know, was the Nusach Ashkenaz, Nusach Sefardi, you know, Edo of Mizrach. I didn't realize that. That's, what, that's what I meant by that. Was, yeah. Uh The Melechah Shlomo combines a lot of previous perushim and then he, he inter, intermixes his own insights. Another figure is Rav Yisrael Najara Who started out in Damascus (coughs) He uh, learned from a student Of the Arizal in Damascus Then he made it to Tzvas. He later became a rab of the Jewish community in Gaza There's a Jewish community in Gaza All the way until the 1700s And while he was in Gaza He composed some of his famous piyutim You probably know the most famous Anybody know Rav Yisrael Najara's famous piyut? Kari Bon Olam Who was singing on Shabbos night The um, last figure I'm going to talk about today is one of the Kedoshim. Uh, we've met two of the of the Aharoni were Kedoshim, Arizal and, uh, and the Alshech HaKadosh. Uh, now meet Rav Shaya Halevi Harvitz, who's the Shla HaKadosh, 1565 to 1630. He was born in Prague, he learned by the Maharam of Lublin, he learned by the Prisha and the Grisha, one of the commentaries in the tour. He um, actually has, uh, he's, a, he's a great, he's a treasure trove of um, knowledge about minhagim, um, Ashkenazi minhagim. He's the earliest source, for, exa- for, for example, for the, for the halacha that we practice till today, of removing the tefillin, the, the tefillin rosh with your left hand to show that we are reluctant to part with the mitzvah. Do you do that? Ashkenazi Minog? So you, 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 don't, you don't use your main hand. You want to show it's hard for me to part with the mitzvah. Um, he tells us, he, he teaches us that we should make sure on, um, on Hadmas and Torah, on Shavuos, that we should make Kiddush only when it's definitely nighttime. Because if we bring in the holiday early, then we will not have had a full counting of all days, of all, of all the, of the Omer uh, going down to the, uh, to the 50th day. He was in Av base team, it was a very high position. He was in charge of the base team in Dubno, Frankfurt, Prague. His wife dies and he shrugs his shoulders and says, okay, I'm, you know, my life has to start all over again. And if I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna go to Eretz Yisrael, which is extraordinary. Because in, in these days in Eretz Yisrael, we don't find many Ashkenazi Jews. There's, there's Bruch, Bruch, some small pockets of mostly Sparty Jews, Tzvat especially. Most of the Gdolin, most of the names that we learned Rav Moshe Cordovero, the, um, the Rizal was a mixture of Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Uh, Rav Yosef Karo, most of them are great Sephardi names. Um, the Shla is one of the few Ashkenazim who comes and he settles New in Shlaim in 1621. He left his family and his friends behind and they're bereft. How does a great Rav leave everybody? So he gives them a go- going away present. You know what he gives them? He writes his book. The Shnei Luchos Sabris, which actually he becomes identified with, the Shla, is the Shnei Luchos Sabris the two tablets. It's in the form of what we call an ethical will, and it's fantastic, and it's a classic. It outlines an ideal life. It presents Minhagi in Kabbalah. It's Perushim and the Torah. It presents major Ikare Das, like the major principles of religion, the Shla Kadosh. Uh, he remarries. He becomes the official Rav in Yerushalayim. He doesn't make a salary there. Uh, there aren't so many Ashkenazim there but a lot of Sephardim who love to learn his Torah and the next years bring terrible persecution financial and otherwise from the Turks remember, remember now the Ottoman period and they're nasty and uh, in a few, uh, four years later he and all the community leaders in Jerusalem are all thrown into prison uh, they're forced to ransom them out for a high sum he flees, he goes to Tiveria and he dies in Tavaria. Uh, he writes a lot. We know a lot about the Shla. I'll give you just some highlights. One of the things you have to associate with the Shla Kadosh is he takes the idea of Simcha and he writes about Simcha. He says, you use Simcha as a great Musr tool. If you know how to channel your Yetzir for good, you'll do so, you'll, you'll, you'll channel to Simcha and you'll, you'll delight in the mitzvahs and you'll be able to control yourself and, 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 and discipline yourself. This is his ideas of Simcha, which I've only labeled without really going into great depth, will be a massive influence in the development of a certain movement coming in the next century. Who am I thinking of? No, 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 Chasidis. Chasidis will be, well, he's not a Hasid, he's before this whole, whole thing, but um, his, his writings on Simcha will, will wind their way, especially, for example, uh, if you ever learn the Tanya. The Tanya owes a great debt to the Shlah. But is it Tanya in Chabad? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but not just Tanya. He's he's very big with uh, with much of Pisidus. the siddis. Uh, he teaches Avort We mentioned this earlier this year. That if a person by niila at the end of niila and Yom Kippur, we say Shema Yisrael. The Shla teaches that if a person says it with kavana, as if he's as if he's prepared to give his life al Kiddish be then it's as if he did it without actually dying. It's a good thing to have a heads up and have Kavan at that point. Uh, he writes a Sidur called the Shar Shemaim Sidur with a commentary that will become the standard Sidur Nusach for Nusach Ashkenaz, for the uh, format of the Ashkenazi Sidur. Uh, tomorrow we're going to go up to Amsterdam and meet some really interesting figures, some good, some bad, and some ugly, uh, and then we're going to meet Shabtai Tzvi. No, 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 no. we're going to do Tachvatat. We're going to have a terrible ordeal I mean, of Tachvatat before Shabtai mean, Tzvi. Well, Uriel de Costa first, but then uh, paving the way for a certain fellow by the name of Baruch Spinoza. Okay, tomorrow.